Today we are continuing our summer road trip, and we are stopping off today for a camp out. Now I have to admit, I have a love-hate relationship with camping, so I'm going to do some surveys today. So let's see the people who just love camping. They love being in the outdoors, just, you know, that's their thing. They love it. Okay, we got, got some here. Let's see the people who are kind of like me. It's like, wait, camping? Nah, how about stay home or a nice hotel? Who, who, who's in that? Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, I have to admit, I grew up in New York, and we're kind of cynical there. And, and so as I grew up, I kind of had a cynical view of camping. My parents never took me camping, and I have a theory about that. They never took me camping because they loved me, okay? That's my, that's my perspective. But I remember as I grew, there was other people who tried to make arguments for camping. I remember one friend of mine said, come on, let's go camping. And I'm like, okay, so let me get this straight. I'm going to burn two days of vacation to sleep on the hard ground and get eaten alive by bugs. Is that it? And he said, oh, man, that's so cynical. He said, man, we're going to be out there in nature. It's going to be beautiful. We'll be, you know, we'll see wildlife. So what kind of wildlife we're going to see? So well, you know, maybe raccoons, rabbits, deer. If we're lucky, maybe we'll see a bear. And I'm like, oh, okay. So not only do I sleep on the hard ground, get eaten alive by bugs, but there's a chance I'll get devoured by a bear. I'll count me in now, you know? It's like I didn't see how that was a great argument for camping. And then another guy was saying, you know, let's go camping. And I said, well, why do you want to go camping? He says, well, you know, Al, we just have a long tradition of camping in my family. And I'm thinking, yeah, every family has a long tradition of camping until they invented these things called houses. You know, it's called civilization. We've, we've progressed. You know, and, and my theory is if it was so great outside, why do all the bugs keep trying to get into my house? I mean, really, you know. But to me, the best argument to, the, to you camper people is we have an expression in our culture, right? A happy camper. Except, have you ever noticed, it's always, he's not a happy camper, that's always how it's used? And I'm like, of course, because he's been camping. <laughs> the, the, the only happy campers I know are the ones leaving the campground because they're going back to their soft bed and their warm shower. So, all right. So that's the hate relationship with camping. It's kind of cynical, I, I understand. But about 25 years ago, my beautiful wife, Jan, convinced me to start hiking in the mountains, and I really love that. And so we started doing some camping cause, because... We'd, we'd take some long hikes, and there's some places where we had to stay out overnight. And I began to enjoy it. And so I've done more camping. And just recently, I uh, decided to take our grandson Joshua camping. And we went with Art and Angelica Lopez and the quad squad over there. And they are amazing campers. It is a joy to be around them. You see the teamwork. You see the, the joy and satisfaction of being in nature and, and the, the family unity that camping builds. And in fact, there is a whole body of research, seriously, that is coming out about the health benefits of camping, both psychologically and emotionally and physically. Because you're out in nature it's a serene, peaceful environment. You sort of unplug at least a little bit from technology, and you're just in an environment that's more conducive to your soul. Plus, you get, tend to get more exercise. You tend to eat better when you're camping. And so there's all kinds of health benefits. But the biggest thing that the research shows is it builds teamwork and bonds in a family. You have to work together to do camping right. 
And as I began to think about that in our road series, uh, you know, our road trip series, I began to realize there are a lot of parallels to camping out and doing life in a faith community like Rock Hills. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. What the Bible has to say about doing life in a faith community and the teamwork that is involved in that. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, your word says that you alone have the words of life. Father, I I know that I am not able to communicate anything that changes my friends here in the deepest parts of their soul and spirit, the changes that they long for. But Father, you can do that. You are able. And so Father, please, would you be here today? And would you speak and get me out of the way so that your words and your truth go forth and accomplish what you desire in the hearts and the souls of my friends? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there are many places in the scripture where it is explained why we do life in community. The Apostle Paul, in virtually every epistle he wrote about, took a section of his letter to the churches and said, you need to do life in a community. It's actually a command in the Bible. And he goes on, and in every letter he gives instruction for what that looks like and how you go about that and the reasons for it. So we're going to take a look at just one letter, a letter he wrote to the Romans. Then we're going to look briefly at the letter he wrote to the Ephesians. And we're going to get a couple of principles that show us that this journey we're on, it's a little bit like a camp out. And we can apply some of these principles of camping to doing life in our faith community. So let's look at Romans chapter 12. I think we're going to have that on the screen here in a second. And it says this, For the, by, by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each body belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. And so the the first thing I want us to notice about this instruction is that God gives each one a gift that's for the benefit of others. Now, this is a profound and important truth, folks. You see, we tend to think of giftedness as something that somebody else has. You know, Tim Duncan, incredibly gifted in basketball with all those championships. Rembrandt, an incredibly gifted artist that has is, that is just created beauty that people around the world have appreciated. And so what starts to seep in is that giftedness either makes us famous or rich or both. And we begin to lose the idea 
that a supernatural gift can be far more mundane, far more typical in every human being. But that is what this book says. Just think about this for a moment. This is so important. You have been given a gift. You have been given a gift. You have been given a gift by the God of the universe. The God who spoke the universe into existence has given you a gift. If you think about the implications of that truth, it should change everything that you think about yourself. You see, there is not a mistake in this room. There's not an accident in this room. I, I hope and pray that all of you regularly go to Psalm 139. It's a psalm written by David. And it has profound truths about the creation of each and every one of you. And in Psalm 30, 139, David writes this. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's new womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. All your works are wonderful. I know this full well. The first thing he says is, you created my inmost being. So whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, whether you're shy or outgoing, God made that decision and created your inmost being that way. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. He knit you together in your mother's womb. You see, he didn't just bring an egg and and a sperm together and set the, the job in motion and take off. God was there every step of the way. Every person in this room is here specifically because the God of the universe decided to create you. And he's given each and every one of you a gift. And one of the greatest joys you will ever have is using that gift. You see, he didn't give you that gift to be a burden or a curse to you. Oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to curse them. I'm going to give them a gift. No. The God of the universe gave you a gift for the benefit of the body, and I want to suggest to you, because I've experienced it, the greatest joy you will ever know is using that gift. Please reflect on this, folks. The God of the universe gave you a gift because he wants to use you and you and you for his purposes on this earth. There is nothing more exciting, nothing more satisfying than being used by God to accomplish his goals on this earth. You know, we see that so many places. Our trip to Honduras, we see that every single year. You know, there's a whole team of folks down there. It's a lot like a camping trip, right? We're down there for eight days. We're basically sleeping in this open air with with a roof. The bugs are getting in and everything else. The cots are so close together, we're bumping into each other. There's 12 guys from Rock Hills and four or five of uh, the team of guys from Honduras. We're all using a uh, facility that I won't even call a toilet. It's just this little, anyway, uh, it's, it's, it's rugged. It's like camping out, okay? And the thing is, we see the body of Christ come together and amazing things be accomplished. Arnaldo, who's, who's my age, has done 300 water projects. He's a, he's a water engineer. He designs the project. His wife, Maria Elena, does a lot of the logistics. There's a team of Honduran women who come from Tegucigalpa, and they cook literally from about 4.30 in the morning so we can have coffee till, till after dinner. They work hard all day. Without that, without the nourishment, we couldn't work all day the way we do. 
And you can go on and on. Mark Smith preaches and connects with the people in the village. And so many of the guys in here, Miguel Meza, who has an amazing connection with the Honduran kids. And I've talked to Miguel. He says, you know, I love kids, and I connect with them here in the U.S., but it's not the same way as he does in Honduras. God has given him the special supernatural gift. He's like the Pied Piper down there. He's, I, I really believe there's going to be hundreds of kids who later on in life will say they came to know Jesus because of Miguel and the gift God gave him. And you have people like Art Lopez and, and Sergio Vega and Jose Yanez and so many of these guys who God has given a supernatural gift to connect cross-culturally. That doesn't just happen, folks. It is a gift given by God. And we see an incredible impact that occurs down in Honduras because of that. But we see the same dynamic here in Rock Hills. You see, it takes a lot of people to make this happen every Sunday. In a sense, doing church like this is a lot like camping out, isn't it? Each and every week, we have to set up camp. We have to have our time on the campground here in worship, and then we have to break camp and put it all away again. And what the Bible says is that each and every one of you has been given a gift for the benefit of the body. Have you ever been on a road trip or a camping trip, and there's some people who aren't you know, doing anything? They're just enjoying, <laughs> enjoying the campsite. That's okay. Stuff gets done anyway, right? Even if a couple of people aren't pitching in. And the same way happens in this church. I'm not complaining. I'm really not. There's a lot of people who do a lot of good things here in this church. You know, Gilbert, whose leadership and his organization does all the setup and breakdown, and Laura and the brew crew and greeting team and, you know, sound and worship. You could go on and on. But what I want to suggest to you is if you are not employing your gift, someone else is going to have to fill in, and they're probably not as gifted as you in that area. And like I said before, God gave you that gift so you can have the joy and satisfaction of being part of what he's doing on this earth. So if you're not involved in any of the teams in Rock Hills, I want to encourage you just to join up. That's the action item. So the truth is, every single person here has been given a gift for the benefit of the body. The action item is, if you haven't learned what that is, just dive in. Start volunteering somewhere, and over time, Hopefully, you'll begin to see where God has gifted you and where that gift plays out, all right? So that's the first point I want to make today. The second point is right here in this, in this uh, the very first verse of, of Romans 12, 3. It's verse 3. It says, it says um, do not consider, think of yourself more highly than you ought. And then Ephesians 2, chapter 4, verse 2 and 3 says this. It says, um, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You see, if you've ever been on a road trip, like we're on this summer road trip, whoever here has been on a road trip with a bunch of people? Come on, let's see a show of hands. Yeah, just about everybody. Let me ask you this, and be honest. On sometime in that road trip, did someone else on the road trip get on your nerves just a little bit? Let's see a show of hands. Yeah, that's just everybody. That's okay. Well, I've got news for you. You probably got on their nerves too. <laughs> you see, I know something about each and every one of you. You have sin in your life. That means you're selfish, 
self-centered person at your very core. And if you put a bunch of selfish people on a road trip together, they begin to get on one another's nerves. So Paul addresses this very issue in every single epistle when he's talking about a faith community. Don't be surprised if you get on each other's nerves. Be humble. Bear with one another. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. And I guarantee you, every one of you do. Let me ask you this. And you've got to be honest with me. Who here thinks they're a below-average driver? Come on. <laughs> below-average driver. You think you're really a really below-average driver? One person, okay? That proves exactly my point. There have been studies around the country. What the studies have consistently shown is like 92% of all Americans think they're above-average drivers. Now, look, I don't have a Ph.D. in statistics like my friend Stephen Eckert, but even I realize it's statistically impossible for 92% of the people to be above average. So that just shows you that we all have a, you know, an opinion of ourselves that's higher than it ought to be. And what Paul is getting at when he talks about this is we learn, need to learn to bear with one another. You know, about a year ago, a, a friend who'd been in this community for a while, sat down with me and said he was leaving the Rock Hills community. And I was disappointed by that, and I started questioning him, and it turned out that there was just a, a little bit of a conflict with one or two people here, and I really encouraged him to, to work those out, and he said, no, you know, they're just getting on my nerves too much, and, and they're now at a mega church. And, and please do not hear me. There's say anything negative about a mega church. Mega churches have a you know, some of the great big churches here in this city have a wonderful ministry. But what I do want to suggest is if you are a member of a megachurch, maybe you show up a couple times a month, you sit down in that theater seat, probably beside somebody you've never seen before and will never see again, and an hour later you get up and that's it. About 90% of what this book has to say about doing life in a faith community simply does not apply. Using your gifts, bearing with one another. You don't have to bear with anyone. And here's the point I'm trying to get at, folks. And, and I hate this. I hate to say this. But if you do life in Rock Hills long enough, I'm going to let you down. I'm going to disappoint you. I'm going to offend you. I wish that wasn't true. I really wish with all my heart that that wasn't true. But it's going to happen because I'm a sinful man. I'm a selfish man. And my hope and my prayer is that you will extend me the grace and the forgiveness that this book talks about. And my commitment to you is if and when you offend me, you rub me the wrong way, my commitment to you is I will extend you the grace and the forgiveness this book talks about. You see, this journey, it's going to have some difficult times. On a long road trip, we're going to get on each other's nerves. But God intended that. Where else are we going to practice the fundamentals of our faith? Apparently, there was a in the 1900s, there was a, a pastor who, who was trying to get his leaders in his church to, you know, to work together and to be more mature. And, and 
I'm sorry, it was leaders from, from around, around the country, and he charged them for this seminar to, to come and, and learn how to be more mature leaders. And they were all, you know, godly Christian men that were very advanced and mature, and then there was this one guy who was just like this total train wreck. And all during the week, he's just bothering everybody. And then as somebody's talking to him, and they're saying, yeah, you know, I know this thing was expensive, but it's probably worth it. And he said, expensive? He paid me to, he paid my way to come to this. And these leaders were really upset, and they went privately to the guy who was putting on the seminar. You charged all of us, and you paid him to come? And his response was, yeah, because all you guys thought you were mature Christians. It's not until you get with a guy like that, you begin to see how far you have to go to really be a mature Christian. He brought that guy who was irritating and annoying along to point out that they weren't nearly the Christians they thought. And so I hope and I pray that we are a community that bears with one another in love, that when you have something with a brother, that you can go to them or go to one of the leaders and we can get it resolved. Now, the last point I want to make today is out of uh, Hebrews chapter 10. And this is a, this is a verse I love, uh, two verses, 10, 24, and 25. And it goes something like this. It says, let us consider how we might spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. You see, this journey is going to be a long journey. If you read the book of Hebrews, you find out there's 20 some odd times where Paul exhorts us to persevere to the end. Some people end up dropping off along the way. And that, that can be demoralizing. That can be discouraging. But what this says is, if you do life together, there's something we can do to help one another, to spur one another on. What is it? It's encourage one another. You know, I didn't grow up in a family where I saw encouragement. Mainly it was criticism. I was like, if you're not doing something, if you're not doing something, uh, you know, the right way, you're going to hear about it. If you're doing something the right way, good. Just keep doing it. No, no need to tell you about it. And that was the environment that I grew up in. And so when I became a Christian and realized that it's a command to encourage one another, at first I wasn't very good at it. I'd say stuff to Jan like, um, yeah, well, this dinner isn't quite as bad as the other ones you've cooked. I mean, I don't know if I actually said that, but that's about how good I was at encouragement, okay? It took me a while. I've been at it for 27 years, and I still have a long way to go. But my commitment is to encourage others. One of the powerful times that we have in Honduras is at the end of the week, we're all tired, we're all getting on each other's nerves, I have all the guys go around and give a word of encouragement to everybody else that's sitting there. And just to see what happens in our group as guys hear words of encouragement and affirmation from one another. It's an amazing thing. It gives energy. It gives focus. And so there's several things that go on here in a camping trip and, and in doing life together in a faith community. And the question is, you know, as I make a commitment to you, 
to try to bear with you and, and to try not to be so annoying, how can I actually cause myself to grow? And the action item I want there for, you know, bearing with one another and don't consider others, you know, don't consider yourself more highly than you ought, is to avail yourselves of the means of grace. Now, what do I mean by that? You see, God can do whatever he wants as far as growing you in maturity and smoothing off those rough edges and making you into a more mature Christian. But if you read the Bible, it's clear that God is pleased to use the means of grace to do that. The means of grace, like being in his word. God says in his word, I will accomplish what I desire when my word goes forth. I will achieve the purpose for which I sent it. There's something powerful about being in his word. It's a little bit like a farmer planting a seed. A farmer cannot make that seed grow. Only God can make that seed grow. But a farmer can prepare the soil. He can water the seed. He can make sure it gets sunlight. And that's our responsibility to one another. So that I won't be so annoying on the journey. You know, if if you talk to guys who went to Honduras, it, it was a tough trip. Like I said, 16 of us using one bathroom. These cots crammed together. Uh, one shower, a cold shower, you know, for 16 of us. Uh, eating together in close quarters every single meal, not getting a great night's sleep. And if you asked people for a list of all the irritating faults that everybody else has, I'm sure they could do a list. Except for me, of course. I mean, you know, I can be a little controlling at times, a little OCD. But I don't think that gets on anybody's nerves because, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a good camper. I'm, I'm definitely a good camper. Yeah, yeah. Wapner comes on in a few minutes. I'm, I'm a very good driver. Yeah, I, I can get a little rain man, okay? <laughs> and, and if you're just with me once a week, that probably doesn't bother you. But if you're my wife or my daughter or my son-in-law or if you're on, on the, you know, eight days with me in Honduras, it's going to get on, on your nerves. So what's the hope I can give them? The hope I can give them is I am going to avail myself, myself of God's means of grace. I'm in his word every day. That's my commitment to my wife and my family because I want to grow and only God can make those changes in me. I'm going to avail myself in the means of grace in corporate worship. He commands us to not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. He wants us to meet corporately. He does something powerful with that means of grace in prayer and time with God. See, this is a long journey. There's going to be ups and downs. It's going to be difficult at times. But God promises that he's going to get it through, get us through it. Philippians 1.6 says this. It says, And he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God is going to ensure that we make it to the end, that we make it safely home to him. But the means that he's going to do that is a group of people, a faith community. And I want so badly to give you an image of that. And as I began to think about what kind of image can I give to the people of Rock Hills, to encourage them to stay together, to encourage them to, in, to spur one another on and to persevere in this faith journey so we make it home safely. I thought of a movie called Apollo 13. And, and many of you probably know the story. 
uh, Jim Lovell, Jim Swaggart, and Fred Haas take off. They're going to supposedly land on the moon and explore the moon. But two days into the journey, there's a bad explosion. It was a miracle that the, the capsule survived. But the bad news was there wasn't going to be enough oxygen or electricity to make it home until literally thousands of engineers began to do everything they could to figure it out. And it was sort of an episode of MacGyver, if you've ever seen the movie. I mean, they, they're taking certain equipment that was never meant to be used and using it to make more oxygen and you know, doing other things to get more power. And they're making it all the way home. They've, they've made it several days back to Earth. But now the moment of truth arrives. Will they make it safely? Because, see, when you re-enter the Earth's atmosphere... The heat is so intense, it takes a special heat shield. And no one could know whether or not that heat shield had been blown up in the explosion that occurred several days before. And that was the moment of truth. Would they arrive home safely? And let's take a look. One minute and 30 seconds to end of blackout. ship has ever taken longer than three minutes to emerge from blackout. This is the critical moment. Will the heat shield hold? Will the command module survive the intense heat of re-entry? If it doesn't, there will only be silence. Mommy, you're squishing me. I'm sorry. That's three minutes. We are standing by for acquisition. Odyssey, Houston, do you read me? Odyssey, this is Houston, do you read? The expected time of reacquisition, the time when the astronauts were expected to come out of blackout, has come and gone. But all any of us can do now is just listen and hope. We're about to learn whether or not that heat shield, which was damaged, as you remember, by the explosion three days ago, has withstood the inferno of re-entry. see this is Houston. Do you read me? Houston, do you read me? Three minutes, 30 seconds, stand by. see Houston. Four minutes, standing by.
took a whole team, hundreds if not thousands of people, to get them home safely. I want to get home safely to my father. I want all of you to get home safely to our father, our ultimate destiny, our ultimate destination. And I'm so glad I had a team of people like Rock Hills that will be with me every step of the way. Let's pray. Father, your wisdom, as Paul writes, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. In your wisdom, thank you that you have ordained a faith community to go through life with, to, to make this journey with. My prayer is that we will be a loving, encouraging community that bears with one another. My prayer is that everyone here will stay committed to the journey of getting home to our final destination and be committed to Rock Hills as a faith community that they do that with. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.